0: Good morning, church. Good morning. It's great to be with you this morning. I'm Ronnie Rents, one of the pastors here. And sometimes our kids, they think when mom and daddy go to sleep, that when they have to go to bed, sorry, not when mom and dad go to sleep, when the kids go to bed, they think that that is when all the fun happens. <laughs> they imagine us, they, they may think we're like going off to Bush Gardens or something, or riding roller coasters, or having movie marathons. And, Yes, some nights we have dates, some nights we watch a movie, but often we find ourselves exhausted. We're cleaning the house and typically we are headed to bed. This week I searched and read through several articles about how exhausted we are as a society. New terms like hyper fatigue have started to catch on. 89% 89% of Americans in 2023 have claimed to experience burnout within this past year. And one factor we can look at may be our exhaust- for our exhaustion is our intake of media. These are some dated statistics, but they're from 2011. And I just want you to imagine how they've exponentially grown today. So in 2011, uh, 11 to 12 hours a day the average American spent on a screen. Uh, in 1986, the amount of information that the average person would receive would be equivalent to about 40 newspapers a day. So 40 newspapers a day in 1986. In 2011, that had grown to 40 newspapers a day, the information that we we're just taking in. And we can't process this much info. We're picking up our phones 60 times a day, around a minute and a half each time. And just consider the content we're going through when we're we're scrolling through on our phones. There's ads, there's texts, there's notifications. We're really distracted. It can also help explain why we're discontent. We can see images that corrupt our view of purity and beauty. We can see others living what appears to be a glamorous life that makes us discontent with our own. These things, they play upon our insecurities. They they play upon our desires. Sometimes I'll be on my phone or on my computer to do a certain task, and I'll find myself distracted a few minutes later asking, what did I get on here to do? I can't even remember. We're exhausted. And our culture and our media intake can help contribute to that. But even more than these things is that we don't know how to find our rest. And I'm not just talking about a nap. I'm not just talking about a vacation. A rest for our weary souls. We will only find our rest in Jesus. We read in Psalms 4 You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep. For you, O Lord, you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. This morning as we consider Jesus's teaching on the Sabbath let's pray that we would find our rest in him let's pray dear God we need you we are so insufficient Lord so often we we go we go we go thinking that we are self-sufficient thinking that we need to do we need to perform Lord And it is in you alone that we find our rest. And so this morning, as we talk about the Sabbath, as we talk about the Lord of the Sabbath, God, I just pray that our hearts would be convicted, our hearts would be encouraged to find, to tap into more and more of our rest that is only found in our precious Savior. Rest for our souls, and rest that only you have accomplished. In your name we pray, amen. So our focus this morning is going to be on two uh, controversies around the Sabbath that pop up in Luke chapter 6, if you want to go ahead and turn there uh, in your Bibles. And if you need a Bible, there's some Bibles in the back on the stand there. Uh, But we'll be in Luke chapter 6, verses 1 through 11. And secondly, after looking at these two controversies, we're going to be looking at what the Sabbath means for us today. So we saw last week... Jesus' presence caused transformation wherever he went. He had a transformative authority to forgive sins. In the religious establishment of the day, they accused him of blasphemy. He healed the sick and broken, and they wanted to get rid of him. He broke bread with tax collectors and with sinners. And he feasted while while their disciples fasted. And the scribes and Pharisees, everywhere he went, they were suspicious of him. They, They wanted to entrap him. They were against him. And now Jesus would challenge the keeping of one of their most deeply held traditions, the Sabbath. In Jewish life, the Sabbath was central. It was a weekly observance. And it was a sign of the covenant between Israel and the Lord. If you want to turn in your Bibles to Exodus 31, verses 12 through 17, or look up on the screens, we'll read why it was such a big deal. And the Lord said to Moses, You are to speak to the people of Israel and say, Above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths. For this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. You shall keep the Sabbath, because it is holy for you. It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth. This, and on the seventh day, He rested and was refreshed. Just as we see in God's creation of the world, there were, they were to work six days a week. And on Saturday, the seventh day, the last day of the week, was to be a holy day. It was to be set apart. And people were to cease from their work along with their animals and their slaves. And if you're found working on this day, you would be put to death. And so it's on the Sabbath, we find Jesus and his disciples, and they're walking in grain fields. And it's so evident that the Pharisees are out to get him. Because why are the Pharisees hanging out in rural grain fields of all places? We read in verse 1, On a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, His disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? The disciples, they were hungry. They took some of the heads of grain and the the Pharisees, they saw this as work. The act of harvesting grain, this would not be a light accusation. As we just heard, this would be a penalty of death. And the Pharisees, they were not content just to have this law of holding to the Sabbath stand on its own that God had given them. They sought to add to it. And they added on regulation after regulation, rule after rule, to make sure that it was followed. And you know, They came up with more than a thousand laws regarding the Sabbath. And what was either allowed or forbidden on it. You couldn't sew more than one stitch You couldn't plow or harvest. You couldn't tie or loose something. You couldn't gather wood. You couldn't buy or sell. You couldn't walk more than 1,999 paces because then it would be considered a journey and that's illegal on the Sabbath. You couldn't write more than one letter on a Sabbath day. I I, I guess they give you that one to cry for help. I'm not sure. And you couldn't even heal on the Sabbath. You, You couldn't even go get medical help unless it was absolutely necessary to save a life if you were wounded unless it would fatally kill you you would have to wait until the next day to do first aid there were so many do's and don'ts it made it impossible to keep this was exhausting to follow all these rules according to the law at this time it was permissible to pluck grain but they were rubbing it in their hands to get the seeds out to eat. This was too much. This was the work that the Pharisees accused the Jesus' disciples of, of working on the Sabbath. So how does Jesus respond to them? He answered them, Have you not read, in verse 3, what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of presence, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat. And also gave it to those with him. And he said to them, The most striking of all, the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus doesn't jump into a debate around Sabbath rules and particulars. Instead, he tells them who he is. And he references another part of Scripture we'll see is 1 Samuel chapter 21, verses 1 through 16. And I'll summarize this account for us. Uh, David Before he becomes Israel's most celebrated king, he is on the run from King Saul. David has favor from God and is going to replace Saul one day, and Saul is so jealous of him and wants to kill him. And so David, fleeing for his life with his men, they run to the only place where they can find refuge, the temple. They're starving, they're hungry, and in the temple, there was always to be a bread of presence kept as a memorial before the Lord every Sabbath. And the only people that were allowed to eat this special bread, this ceremonial bread, were the priests. And so David, famished and his men, they asked the high priest for food that only the priest can eat. And the priest grants it to them. They ate this memorial bread from the temple only meant for priests on the Sabbath. And yet nowhere does the Bible rebuke or condemn them for doing so. Jesus is bringing up this example of David to illustrate his point. If David, who wasn't even king at this time in his life, was free to partake of the holy bread in the temple to meet his very real needs of starvation, how much more is Jesus able to override this Old Testament regulation and meet the needs of his hungry disciples? The issue here for Jesus is authority. He said to them that the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He's not under it. He is over it. This notion, hearing these words, would have rocked the Pharisees' minds. Not only does He call Himself the Son of Man again, which we saw last week references the great conquering eternal ruler that we see from the book of Daniel. He also claims to be the Lord of the Sabbath. Now, it's one thing to say, like an NBA player, call yourself Lord of the Rings for winning multiple championships, or if you're a a dancer from Ireland, you may be the Lord of the dance. But it's another thing entirely to claim you are the Lord of the Sabbath. The Sabbath was given to the people of Israel when Moses brought down the Ten Commandments from Sinai. Even in God's instruction of the Sabbath, it's rooted in the creation of the world when God made and blessed the seventh day. And here the Pharisees, they're astounded to hear that this 30-something-year-old teacher calls himself the Lord of the Sabbath. The only one with authority to do this would be God Himself. He tells the Pharisees, I rule over this day. And you've missed the point. The Pharisees they are guilty of sticking to the letter of the law rather than the spirit of the law. And Jesus is greater than their law. Only He can rule the Sabbath. He owns it. We talk about the Pharisees so much, but isn't it astounding to imagine this from Jesus' point of view? I was just reflecting on this this week. Jesus is is the One who made all things. And He's being challenged by the Pharisees for His behavior on a day that He made. That He set apart. And this, this law was made to bless, not to burden. How often can we focus on rules and regulations and like the Pharisees, forget the purpose of those rules. Our meticulous obedience isn't what is going to make us worthy before God. Sometimes our obedience in our, in our success, it can create in us a pride. Instead of worshiping God, we begin to worship ourselves in our obedience, taking pride in what we've done, taking pride in how we've followed the law. We find ourselves becoming like the Pharisees. And we can strive and toil and be like the most zealous of the Pharisees, and we will never... Have His rest. We will never enter in to rest. And this Son of Man, this King greater than David, forever would change the Sabbath. When He went to the cross, when He took the wrath of God for the sins of the world, everyone who would repent of their sin and put their trust and faith in Him, they would no longer need to work to be righteous before God. For everyone trusting in Christ, He has become their rest. We can rest in Him, living under His Lordship overall. But this would not be the end of the Pharisees' scrutiny of Jesus on the Sabbath. We see in verse 6, on another Sabbath, He entered the synagogue and was teaching. And a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watching him again to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath, so that they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts, and he said to the man with the withered hand, Come and stand here. And he rose and stood there. Once again, they're trying to catch Jesus in violation of the law. They want him to incriminate himself by healing on the Sabbath. But Jesus knows their evil thoughts. And Jesus, with a wonderful sense of the dramatic, asked this man with a withered hand to stand up in front of everyone so that all could see. The Pharisees, they plot in the shadows, but Jesus doesn't hide the truth. He wants to make sure everyone knows what is about to take place. The Pharisees, they consider this man a test case. This man's hand would have most likely been withered due to paralysis or atrophy. And they knew Jesus was so generous that He'd heal everyone. And so if He healed him, this would be considered work on Jesus' part. And they'd be able to incriminate Him. He'd be guilty and charged with death. They could kill Him. And in all their obsession to get rid of Jesus, they've forgotten about this suffering man right in front of them. But Jesus doesn't. To the Pharisees, He's a pawn to get what they want. But to Jesus, he's a sufferer in need of healing. This is a good test for us. If we ever want to test someone's theology or their morality, it's either passed or failed by how they respond to the weakest and most defenseless members of our society. We can't rightly love God and fail to love the person that is right in front of us, his image bearer. Jesus turns to the crowds. And he asked a question. Verse 9. Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save life or to destroy it? This question has an obvious answer. What a softball he gave them to hit out of the park. Anyone should be able to answer this. Of course it's lawful on the Sabbath to do good, not to do harm. To save life instead of destroy it. But by Jesus' standard, failure to do good in this circumstance is in effect to do evil. We read in James 4, So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is a sin. Jesus even asking this question about what is lawful would have been such an indictment of the Pharisees. Why are they there? To destroy him he sees their their evil thoughts he they're there to destroy jesus he exposes their intentions and he looks around the room and he's waiting for an answer to this obvious question see if there's any small measure of mercy that anyone might have no one answers him we know from other gospels if we look over in mark it says that he looked around at them in anger with anger grieved at their hardness of heart." So Jesus in this silent room, people waiting to, to indict Him for healing. The man with the withered hand called up to the front. After looking around at them all, He said to him, stretch out your hand. And He did so, and His hand was restored. But they were filled with fury and discuss with one another what they might do with Jesus. Jesus (laughs) instructs this man to stretch out his hand, something he is not capable of doing. And he heals this man's hand. And what's so great is that he only does it by speaking a word to him. He doesn't lift a finger. And the Pharisees have no case against him. This would have doubly frustrated them. And in response, they lose it. They're full of rage, and they want to kill him. Even in the presence of miracles, their hard hearts are not changed. In the social sciences, we call this a confirmation bias. Confirmation bias happens when a person takes uh, whatever evidence is against their position and interprets it in a way that actually confirms their position. And so, they hated Jesus so much that even in His wonderful, life-giving miracles of healing, they were seen as evil, demonic acts against the one true God. From these accounts, it's clear that Jesus was no ordinary teacher. He is the Lord of the Sabbath, and He has the authority to do whatever He wants The Pharisees, with all the rules, had turned this gift of grace into a burden. We were weighing them down. But what about us today? Does this apply to us? What is the Sabbath for? Is it is it Saturday? Is it Sunday? What can we do? What can't we do? I remember thinking back about the Sabbath as a kid and thinking, who's going to break that rule? Oh no, I don't have to work. What a shame. But as I've sought to understand the Sabbath, I realize just how much this teaching has been neglected in the church. At times, I think about ways where I've failed to seriously take this, uh, to think about this topic as much as I should. should. I've seen areas of unfaithfulness in my life that I need to repent. I cringe sometimes. I think back to even, even at seminary. I remember working so hard uh, on assignments and being so behind and trying to play catch-up that I'd miss, I'd pull all night or miss church the next day so that I'd get caught up in seminary. And when I say I need to repent, I don't think in many ways these are rules that I have not followed. But it's a gift that I have not received and treasured as much as I should. In the New Covenant, the Sabbath as Israel knew it was gone. For instance, we don't enforce the death penalty to those who work on the Sabbath. It was given to Israel as a covenant. And when Christ died and rose again bringing the new covenant, it was forever changed. For every New Testament believer, Christ has become our rest. And the word Sabbath in Hebrew literally means rest. He is our Sabbath. And what we see in the New Testament, in the fulfillment that Christ brings, we see a new emphasis given to to Sunday. First, we see the day our Savior arose from the dead. Easter, Resurrection Sunday. On this day, Jesus goes and tells His disciples that He has risen from this dead. And at this point, Sunday had no significance to the Jewish calendar. Saturday was the day of the Sabbath. But Sunday had no significance at all. But after this resurrection, the first day of the week would never be the same. We read in Luke 24, that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified on the third day rise. And they remembered His words, and returning from the tomb, they told all these things to eleven, to the eleven and all the rest. So we see Jesus teaching on Sunday, telling of the resurrection on Sunday, on Easter Sunday. A week later, Jesus would appear to His disciples again to commission them, So that's the beginning of that week. On the first day of the week, Jesus commissions the disciples on a Sunday. When Pentecost happens, in Acts, we see the Holy Spirit come down and fill New Testament believers. This is the inauguration of the church. The church being formed. And what day did this happen? The first day of the week, Sunday. For the resurrection, the disciples' commissioning, and for Pentecost to all happen on a Sunday. We see that this move from Sunday, this is not a man-made tradition that some may claim. But a day forever changed by the coming of Jesus. God had a special emphasis for this day. And then we see it carried on by the apostles. We see it in the life of the church, the first day being important. Paul instructs them to set aside their offerings in 1 Corinthians. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside, store it up as he may prosper, so there will be no collecting when I come. In Acts 20, we see them gathered together, doing what? Breaking bread and Paul teaching all the way up till midnight. On the first day of the week, when we're gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. Later in Revelation, we'll see John reference, uh, reference something called the Lord's Day. In Revelation 1.10, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. And we see just in this apostolic tradition that Sunday becomes known as the Lord's Day. So, there's this biblical presence for this thing called the Lord's Day on Sunday. But what should we do on this day? In the Old Covenant, Israel worked, and they longed for the rest to come on the seventh day. But the beautiful thing is, now in the New covenant, we begin with the rest that we have in Christ. We begin the week, already attained through the precious blood of Christ in his rest. And then we work out of that rest. What a beautiful picture of what God has done. We're not under the old covenant law. We read in the Colossians, therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Christ is our rest. He is our Sabbath. And we can rest and worship Him every day. But brothers and sisters, if there are two ditches, one we've talked about falling into is this just thinking we're under the law, got to follow every single rule, every stipulation. I believe the ditch on the other side of the road that we're probably most prone to fall into is that the Sabbath doesn't have any meaning for us today. God has given us a gift in the principle of working six days and resting one. Sabbath is not just about one day. It's about seven days. What a, what a blessing it is. So many times today, we're, we're working and we're looking down on our phone or we're, we're kind of resting, working, resting, working. Instead, we, we should be working as unto the Lord. Looking forward to that Sabbath rest. <clears throat> And when we think about observing the Sabbath in our lives, if you're anything like me, my first instinct is to ask, what, what's it okay for me to do on the Sabbath? What should I be doing? Is it okay if I do this? Is it okay if I do this? I kind of start becoming a little bit of a Pharisee thinking, thinking through. And I, I think when we think this way, it becomes less as a gift than it was meant to be. But if we see the rest God gives us as a gift... I believe it comes much more beautiful. What if we worked in a way six days into the Lord and on the Lord's day took a break from our regular labors and sought to delight in Him. To gather and to worship with God's people. To rest. To read His Word and pray. To fellowship. To enjoy His creation. In our weekly pattern, we should strive to set a day of rest. Set it apart. And seek of all days, to make it this day if possible. We know from the Gospel of Mark that Jesus also said to them, the Sabbath was made for man. Not man for the Sabbath. With all the rules and the stiff regulations of the scribes and Pharisees, they made it into something it was never intended to be. The law was meant to serve them. It was meant to remind them that God is their God and they are His people. Can you imagine what it might look like if you weren't a part of Israel just observing Israel's weekly custom where everything just stops for them? It was to refresh their souls. A day entirely dedicated to their Creator to meet with Him, enjoy Him, and rest. Beloved, what if we worked hard not for God's approval, but for His glory six days a week. And then what if we stopped and remembered Him on the Lord's Day, taking a break from all our strivings? Do you think there would be blessing in that? Do you think that resting in the Lord as He intended would help us with our exhaustion? After this gathering, I encourage you, do things that restore your soul. Do things that delight, help you delight in God, that grow your affections for Him. Your email will be there on Monday. Read and meditate on His Word. Pray. Be with His people. God's law leads to our liberty. It's to our thriving that God gives us these instructions. And ceasing from our rest, this is a hard thing to do. Little kid Ronnie thought it was easy, but it's, it can be hard to do. Because rest requires trust. Think about those workers in Jesus' day. Many of them, they weren't salaried. They were day laborers. And so you're asking them to take a day off from earning wages. But their, their provision would come from the Lord. And so I ask you this morning, where might you be seeking to find your rest outside of God? What God provides for you is greater than anything that you could provide for yourself. And our continual exhaustion is ultimately a result of our rebellion against God. And so some ways that we look back lays that we look and find our rest. I just want to leave you with three scriptures. First is that we look back at the cross to find our rest. Ephesians 2. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Amen. For He Himself is our peace who has made us both one and broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that He might create Himself in Himself, one new man in place of the two. So, making peace, it might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And He came and He preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through Him, we both have access in one Spirit to the Father. Jew and Gentile alike, all nations, every tribe and tongue has access. To Christ and all of us who have been, rejected, who have trusted in this gospel of His grace, we can look back at what has already been accomplished. That is where our rest is found. Secondly, we can look up right now, seated at the right hand of righteousness, Colossians 3. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, set your mind on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. (laughs) We don't have to work for a rest. He's done it all for us. He sits. He's perfectly kept the law. We sit down when we've done something. Jesus is seated at the right hand of God. He's pleading on our behalf. He's accomplished our rest on the cross. And lastly, we can look forward to when we'll be with Him in glory. 1 John 3-2 Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. The days are coming when we will be like Him. We'll have perfect bodies. All our exhaustion will be withered away. And we'll enter into His forever rest. Can you imagine just how beautiful that will be? Forever rest with our Creator. Knowing Him back in the garden as we should. But we know it's not fully here yet. Jim read earlier, or prayed earlier from Hebrews. And something interesting is that everyone who is in Christ, everyone who has repented and put their faith and trust in Christ, they've entered into His rest, but not fully still. We're still left to struggle here. We read in Hebrews 4.11, So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest... Has also rested from his works as God did from his. Right? We, we have that eternal rest in Christ. But there is also, we read in the next verse, let us therefore strive to enter the rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. There is still a striving, but it's an operating out of the rest that we have in Christ. So, brothers and sisters, we live in this tired, weary, An exhausted world. Maybe you're here this morning and you don't know Christ. You've been looking for rest in all the wrong places. In our striving and in our toil, we can miss the abundant grace that is only found in Jesus Christ. Religion tells us to perform like the Pharisees, but Jesus says, come to Me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Let's find our rest in Him. Let's delight in Him. Trusting in His perfect provision every step of the way. Let's live for this Lord of the Sabbath. Let's pray. God, when we think about our faithfulness and our lack of it, we're reminded of Your grace. May we, think, may we think often about what You have done for us, what You are doing for us. And Lord, may we just delight in your, in your promises. May we not add them as burdens that weigh us down, but may we embrace the gifts that You give us, God. Help As we consider what, what a rest looks like for us, what a Sabbath rest looks like for us, what a, the weekly rhythms of our life, the, the, the day in, day out of, of the Lord's day, Give us wisdom. Give us discernment, God. Help us to prioritize things that that grow our heart hot for You. Help us to to meet You in Your Word, worshiping with Your people, growing in our affections, God. We can worship You every day. God, thank You for the rest that we have in You. In Your name we pray. Amen.